Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, you know, an album that welds its way into our psyche. Today, we are getting too high and living just enough for the city by returning to Stevie Wonder's 1973 masterpiece, Inner Visions. Don't you worry about a thing, mama, cause I'll be standing in the side when you check it. Ah, 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 ah. In the stories we tell about the career arcs of our greatest pop artists, there are always those albums that, in hindsight, become enshrined as keystones in artistic maturations when acts went from being more than mere hit makers and instead elevated into cultural icons. For the Beatles, it was Revolver. For Aretha, it was I Never Loved a Man. For Michael, it was Off the Wall. For Stevelyn Hardaway Morris, the artist better known as Stevie Wonder, his moment came with inner visions when he was all of 23 years old. We as a people are not interested in baby baby songs anymore, said Stevie around this time, signaling that he was preparing to shift his creative focus away from Motown machine hit songs to something more personal, more social, more spiritual. Whether talking about addiction on Too High or taking thinly veiled shots at Richard Nixon on He's Mr. Know-It-All or probing the nature of reincarnation on higher ground, Intervisions marked a turning point in Wonder's creative, well, visions, setting up the rest of his 70s output and all but establishing him as one of the most important voices in pop music for the era. And, oh yeah, it sounded pretty good, too. Nelson George is an author and filmmaker, a cultural commentator and preservationist. Fortunately for all of us, he's taken notes about black history for the last several decades and has been blessed with the grace and gift to share them with us. His presence has been felt at Billboard magazine and the Village Voice, to name a few, and he's considered the leading U.S. historian on hip-hop, but is also fluent in virtually every musical genre where it relates to black folks in this beautiful thing we call music. A Grammy winner for his work on the liner notes for James Brown's Star Time, his output and influence are prolific. He's not an archivist, he's actually the archives, like the whole archives. So how do you introduce him? You don't. You just keep it short and thank the stars for aligning themselves well enough to have him talk to you about this beautiful thing we call music. Nelson George, welcome to Heat Rocks. Well, thank you for that uh, intro. Um... Uh, you know, I never, it's funny, people always say that hip hop thing. I, I never think of myself as a hip hop writer. I think of myself as a, a writer about black music. I love hip hop, but I love, you know, Motown. I wrote a book on Motown. I wrote a book on rhythm and blues. So those things are, are, uh, injury as much a part of me as, as a breakbeat. So Nelson, why inner visions? I was 15 or 16 years old in 1973. And, um, I had already, been really starting to really become a music head. You know, um, my mother had had a, was a big soul music fan. We had tons of um, 45s in the house. She used to have Friday, Saturday night parties. Uh, but by 73, the music was becoming more album oriented. And, you know, Al Green and um, Marvin Gaye and uh, Superfly and Shad, all those albums were part of our house. 
And I was beginning to sort of really get into albums as a a musical, as, a, as an experience, not just as a collection of singles. And I feel like Inner Visions is the first album that really became an album experience for me as a, as a, as a person, you know, as a sort of a music person. I would sit down in the living room stereo. We had a stereo in the living room. And I would just put the album on. I would sit in front of it and listen to it over and over again. It's almost a cinematic experience, I, I feel like this album is. I mean, if you look at that period of Stevie from um, 72 to 76, more or less, you know, Music in My Mind, uh, Talking Book, Inner Visions, Fulfilling This First Finale, Songs in the Key of Life, they're almost like one big album. Almost all, almost all those albums, except for Songs in the Key of Life, were co-produced by um, Robert Margoloff and Malcolm Cecil, Cecil, who were kind of masters of um, the uh, Moog synthesizer and a lot of that new technology that Stevie was diving into. I think that Inner Visions is the, for me, the best of that of the single albums. Partly because um, I think because of living it for the city. And you best believe she hardly gets a pity. Nelson, you mentioned before that you were probably around 15 or 16 when this album came out. And so you were effectively coming of age at the time in which Stevie was making this really remarkable artistic transition from his, you know, his roots as a child star as little Stevie Wonder and just turning into what I could only imagine would have been a massive cultural figure of the 1970s. And wondering if you could talk a little about what was it like witnessing that in real time? Because the the Stevie that we're getting on Inner Visions is not necessarily the Stevie that we got on fingertips from the late 60s. And so watching his transition and his growth and maturation, um, what, what were your memories of seeing this this cultural icon in development, in essence? Well, you know, I, we had all of those uh, uptight as a 45 in my mother's collection. We had all of those singles. And we would, you know, we were, Motown was the 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 track, the soundtrack for so much. And you'd see Stevie, you know, as little Stevie with the glasses and the, and the suit and the, and the white shirt Motown thing. But then you began seeing him on things like Don Kirshner's In Concert, you know, and um, Soul Train. And this was a different guy. He was definitely becoming an adult and an adult in the way that you did in the 70s. Um, the, the clothes that Stevie was wearing, <laughs> the Applejack hats and some of the other uh, outfits, were stuff that I was seeing my mother's friends wear. And that, in fact, we were wearing in, in junior high school and in high school. The way Stevie looked and the topics of the songs he wrote about uh, and the feeling of the songs were right in pocket with what was going on on the streets of, of, of Brooklyn, where I grew up, and in New York City. He seemed like he was reflecting what it meant to be young, black, and smart, uh, he he was a lot more. I mean, because a range of topics on on inner visions, you know, too high, and um, and visions go right. The first two tracks on the album are essentially feel like a, a a guy talking about being high. It's a guy talking about being high. Too high is the funky get down part of being high. And visions is a laid back on my sofa looking at this looking at the ceiling with my black light poster. I mean, because. Uh, uh, Stevie, Stevie's music seemed to be perfectly 
connected to that moment in time. Uh, I guess, I don't know. I mean, Stevie was probably uh, in his early, he was in his early 20s as well. So even though, you know, he was blind, he was right there with us uh, in terms of what was going on and, and being black and being young. She had a chance to make it big more than once or twice, but no dice. She wasn't there or not. It's unbelievable to me that in 1973, when this album was released, that this was like his 16th album. And yet, to you mentioned, as, as you mentioned, he was really a young man, and had, but had gone through some things. I know you wrote a lot about Motown in your book, Where Did Our Love Go? It's about the rise and fall of the sound. Can you put into context what was going on at the label around the time Stevie recorded Intervisions? Well, you know, the key thing to know is that Stevie had come of age, you know, I guess, uh, I, I forget what age, I believe, I, I could be 18, it could be 21. At some point, he came of age, and a lot of the royalties and money that had been accrued over the years came to him, which was a considerable sum. Um, so he was able to, you know, move out of Detroit, and that, 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 you know, Motown at that point, it also was moving to L.A. anyway. But he was able to become a much more bi-coastal person. He was living in New York and Los Angeles. Uh, and the label itself was tra in transition. It was no longer the Motown sound. You had Marvin, you know, had done uh, had done uh, Inner City Blues and What's Going On. And then he also was moving into like things like um, Let's Get It On. There was a transition. Uh, Smokey was doing Quiet Storm album. So the idea of the concept album uh, was big, a big thing in black music at the time. You also had FM radio, which is very important to mention. So you had stations that were aimed at black audiences that had better sound, literally. They, it wasn't no longer the the little AM station and into the dial. It was uh, a station with a really lush FM sound. So the the sound of, the, of black music could, could be bigger because it was uh, a longer landscape. And these stations were playing, uh, they weren't, fast-talking DJs anymore. You had people like Frankie Crocker or um, 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 the people down in, D in D.C. who created um, The Quiet Storm. So there was a more mellow, more adult atmosphere. So the texture of the music was bigger. Uh, and the songs went from three minutes, two minutes to five. You know, I'm looking at the track listing here. You know, some of these songs are four or five minutes long. That was, again, a, a reflection of the time. You mentioned the relevance of Marvin Gaye and, and what's going on, and obviously that marked a massive shift, not just for Motown, but just in terms of American popular music and black music in particular of that era. Inner Visions, I don't know if you would necessarily describe as as his as Stevie's first quote-unquote political album, though I, I do think he addresses social issues on here to a greater depth than he does on some of his previous LPs. Do, you, do we know if... You know, to what extent had Stevie listened to to Gaze, what's going on, and been inspired or influenced or nudged by it in terms of thinking about his own path as an artist? Or was his coming to making social issue songs something that was really much just about Stevie as an individual as opposed to what he was listening to from his label mates? Well, I, th I think Stevie was very, I mean, he and Marvin and those guys, he grew up with Marvin Gaye and grew up with all the Motown musicians. He was definitely affected by what's going on and the freedom that 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 meant and the freedom meant for him not just as a black artist but as a Motown artist. Um, so uh, 
trying to hold Stevie back from writing anything political, any argument that could have been made for that, that was done. You know, um, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, the guy, you know, when you look at Motown, you, you think about the Supremes come see about me and stuff. Living for the City became a, was a single off this album. You know, and uh, it's a it's a mini epic of uh, of uh, of coming to the to the to the, the 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 great migration of black people to the north in like seven minutes and twenty two seconds, <laughs> and uh, that's something that was inconceivable, I think, without what's going on. Um, that was revolutionary. Do you think this is Stevie Wonder's best album, or is it just your favorite album of his? I go back and forth. After I, I looked, I went and then looked at um, fulfilling this personality, and looked at the track listing for uh, Talking Book. You know, I really, I do believe that a lot of these are interchangeable. Uh, this whole section, these three or four albums, they seem like they're probably all done in marathon sessions. Uh, it's hard for me to make that decision. I would say that ultimately you have to say that songs in the key of life is the big, the big bang because there's the range of music, you know, there's, there's kind of like jazz rock instrumentals on that thing. <laughs> you know, there's, right. uh, there's, uh, conceptual things or with accordions and, and clavinets and, and sort of like uh, spoken word pieces almost on, on that album. So that album encompasses the, 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 the breadth of his musicianship. I mean, when I bought it, you know, you get that you got two albums and there was a 45 inside. No one had ever done anything like that. Uh, but if you want to distill, to me, if you want to distill Stevie into one record, I would take into visions over fulfilling this. I ask because heretofore, and I've talked about this um, on, on other shows, Songs in the Key of Life is my earliest musical memory. As a child, that I, I had an awareness of music and had an emotional reaction to music. With Songs in the Key of Life, um, an album that my father turned me on to and just listening, listening to it with him. And so I've spent so much time, you know, building, you know, the, the legacy around I mean, the story around Songs in the Key of Life, because it's so precious to me personally as a child, that I think I paid so much attention to that, that inner visions for me sort of got lost, because it's hard to compare, for me, at least just based on the sheer volume, the breadth of tracks. But knowing that we were going to talk about this forced me to revisit. And I thought, gosh, not that I would necessarily change my mind, but I feel like I missed a lot, um, because I came to Oh, you didn't miss you. You're lucky. You got a chance. You're you're really lucky because you get a chance to re-experience this almost as a new album. Yeah, and as an adult, and so I think I, I'm glad that you picked this album because in prep for the chat, I was thinking, gosh, I've spent so many years um, talking about how precious "Songs in the Key of Life" is because of the relationship um, that it has with me and my father, spending time together and coming to know that as a little kid, um, and to listen to Inner Visions as an adult uh, gave me an appreciation for. Uh, inner visions that I might have slept on a little bit earlier. So I thank you for bringing it up because it forced me to go back to listen to all these tracks and listen listen to them differently. I did. I, I was li well, one thing that's interesting about me going back to this album is you know how many people have I've seen how many people have sung "All Is Love Is Fair." 
That's been recorded by Zingin people. Higher Ground was done by the Chili Peppers. You know, so when you look at this, and I, actually Jesus Chosen America has also been covered quite a few times. Don't you worry about a thing. So the thing about some of these songs is that they, um, you've heard these songs, they're part of the DNA of American music. Um, and I think that's what's extraordinary about this whole suite of, of songs from Stevie from this period is that, I, th- I think of it this way, it's hard for people who, who, don't, who weren't there in this, to remember, everyone thinks of the Beatles in the 60s. And that's it. everyone says how dominant they were. Stevie in the early set to mid 70s was the Beatles. He won Best Grammy of the Year. This album won Best Album of the Year. He was perennially winning that. Even people think, everyone thinks about Thriller and the dominance of Thriller, and you maybe could go into Off the Wall and, and um, Bad, which is great. They're not as good as these Stevie Wonder albums. And quite honestly, the other key element in, in, is the technology. The way Stevie used uh, the, the, no one had, this keyboard, these synthesizers had been around now by 73, uh, since the late 60s. And, you know, everyone from Pete Townsend on through had been messing with them, trying to figure out what to do with them. No one made them more musical than Stevie Wonder. Once these records came out, you can listen to the records of Rufus and Chaka Khan. You can listen to the records of, of Quincy Jones. You can listen to the records of, of all of those people and of all those great musicians who were making great music. And they had to, they had to change the game. It changed the game of what black music sound like and then what pop music sounded like. Nelson, I'm really glad you brought this up because I do, I could not agree more that I think one of the distinguishing parts of what Stevie was doing during this run in the seventies had a lot to do with his really unabashed embrace of emergent music technology. So on this album, uh, you mentioned, I think, the Moog bass earlier. He's playing Fender Rhodes electric piano. And the most important instrument, arguably, is the Tonto synthesizer. And for folks listening out there who've never seen this before, it's really hard to describe, but it's basically a small room-sized contraption that looks like you're in the middle of a retro-futuristic UFO. And there's this really amazing footage online of Wonder recording songs for Intervisions inside of the Tonto chamber, and he's flanked by the synth programmers that Nelson mentioned earlier, Robert Margleff and Malcolm Cecil. And in this uh, clip from the documentary, you can hear Cecil explaining what their collaboration with Stevie was like. And then from the Inner Visions album, an inner city epic, Living for the City. A boy's born in Hotdown, Mississippi. But where Marvin Gaye used harmonies and jazz rhythms to sell the message, Stevie Wonder used a synthesized funk beat with an anger in his voice artfully captured by his co-producers. We worked him hours. I'd stop the tape in the middle of the tape, right, and it, to get him angry, to get that anger and that real feeling. So that second voice, that was actually Cecil uh, describing what the collaboration was like. And Nelson, could you talk a little bit more about the relevance of Stevie's willingness to, number one, collaborate with other folks, and especially his embrace of technology as a way of reshaping, as you were saying before, really reshaping the sound of American pop music of this era? Well, you know, it's, you know Stevie was a guy who came up as a child uh, in the bosom of Motown. And when I, said, from all, when I did the book, uh, Where I Love Go?, um, I interviewed, you know, Earl Van Dyke, who's a band leader, uh, James Jameson, um, P. 
Pistol Allen, some of the great musicians who worked in there. And he was there. He was the guy who was always in the studio. He was there with them in what they called the snake pit. So he was someone who was very much uh, uh, aware of all the ways in way music could be used because those guys were all jazz musicians. Just in terms of his education, he got a vivid education there. He's seeing technology both from a Hendrix point of view. I mean, he worked at, I'm sure he worked at Electric Ladylands specifically because Jimmy had created it. Um, Miles was doing his work where he was, you know, plugging in. So this Herbie Hancock's work, this was happening. This all was happening. If you're a person who's listening to what's going on in the music at that time, the technology is unescapable. And all of the people who were considered the top musicians, not in R&B, just the top musicians in in jazz, were were adopting the technology. And the the Fender Rhodes was the new thing to do. The 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 Moog, the Arp, the Tonto. I mean, but to get the the thing is that Stevie had to be Stevie to get the Tonto. It's a huge commitment. He's got to work with these these guys. He can hear what he wants to hear, but then he's got to go through the technology to figure out how to get it. And I think that's the real beautiful thing about this is how he put these things in in recognizable structures so that they weren't just oddities. We will be back with more of our conversation with music historian and writer Nelson George about Stevie Wonder's Intervisions after word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Hey, podcast fan. We have a quick favor to ask. We'd like to get a better idea of who you are and what you care about. So if you have a couple moments to spare, go to MaximumFun.org slash ad survey. There, we've got a short, anonymous survey that won't take any more than 10 minutes to fill out. Plus, if you finish it, you'll get a 10% discount on our merch at the MaxFun store. MaxFun shows have always relied on support from our members and always will. The survey will help keep the few ads we do run relevant and interesting for you. Again, that's MaximumFun.org slash ad survey, all one word. And thanks for your help. Video games. Video games. Video games. You like them? Maybe you wish you had more time for them. Maybe you want to know the best ones to play. Maybe you want to know what happens to Mario when he dies. (laughs) In that case, you should check out Triple Click. It's a brand new podcast about video games. A podcast about video games? But I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Once a week, Kickback as three video game experts give you everything from critical takes on the hottest new releases to scoops, interviews, and explanations about how video games work to fascinating and sometimes weird stories about the games we love. Triple Click is hosted by me, Kirk Hamilton. Me, Jason Schreier. And me, Maddie Myers. You can find Triple Click wherever you get your podcasts and listen at MaximumFun.org. Bye! And we are back on Heat Rocks. We are talking the seminal album from Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions, with author Nelson George. Nelson, I wanted to ask, when I first started writing about music, this was about 25 years ago, so around 94, 95, and I was hugely inspired by the examples of folks like yourself and Greg Tate. And if I'm doing the math, this means that you have been writing about music for at least over 40 years now. And I'm wondering, what has changed, if any, in terms of your approach to how you think and write about music over that time? I, I miss 
I miss getting the vinyl in, or, or you know, really the vinyl, but also CDs, and be able to read the credits immediately. I think one of the things that I really used to love about this process was, okay, finding these threads um, that you didn't know existed. You know, you get this, you'd get, if you get the individual album, who is Malcolm Cecil and who are these guys? So you start going backwards and trying to figure out what their track records are. Now the music comes as these sort of anonymous downloads or streams with no context often. And so you have to kind of figure out who these producers are, who these arrangers are. I mean, like uh, on uh, Mr. Know-It-All, uh, for some reason, Willie, Willie Weeks, who's a great bass player, plays the bass line on Mr. Know-It-All. Who's Willie Weeks? So that's how I, I would work a lot back then. I would read the credits. In fact, that's how I started really getting into it, I, I, thinking back. Um, I would read the credits on these albums. And that was the beginning of me connecting the dots on, oh, this guy, uh, he wrote, wrote on such and such, or he produced such and such. And that was a lot of my early... Um, understanding of how music worked was that there was that it wasn't a great man theory i missed that sense of being able to have a, a physical project and be able to connect immediately to, to everyone who worked on the record i hear that i definitely hear that you know during the days of the village voice we came out i think i think it came out on a wednesday and it was available thursday morning at certain newsstands and then by friday people were starting to pick it up so you could go out on a, on a Friday night or a Saturday. You go to a show in New York or a movie theater, and you would run into people who'd read a review you've written. And they would tell you if it, su- <laughs> if it was terrible, if it sucked. It's, I, missed, I missed the actual uh, face-to-face that happened, that, that the voice was part of, because you were part of the New York music community. Everything here, so people are, are both, more, both meaner <laughs> digitally than they would ever be face-to-face, and sometimes a little more reactive. Well, bringing this back to Stevie and Inner Visions, you mentioned before, <laughs> Nelson, that you're one of, one of your favorite songs uh, off the album. And why don't we actually go around the horn and talk about our respective fire tracks? And sure. if I can t- take the prerogative of, of going first here, for me, and this is an album in which you have such a bounty of best potential songs to pick from. But as a DJ, the one that I have always gravitated towards is Don't You Worry About a Thing. Partly it's because it is such a perfect bridge track for someone like me who likes to play a lot of R&B, but also a lot of Latin music. And so this song goes both ways. I can either begin a Latin set with it coming out of R&B, or I can come out of a Latin set and go into some soul music with it. And so just, yeah, just to hear Stevie work with that opening Afro-Cuban Montuno piano riff, my favorite, not just my favorite song on the album, but also that opening is my favorite moment on the album as well. You know, Paris, Peru, you know, I'm in Iraq, Iran, Eurasia, you know, I speak very, very fluent Spanish. Todo está bien, chévere. 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 Is that right, mama? I got my shaking room on the door. How about for the rest of you? What's what's your fire tracks off of Intervisions? I've gone back and forth on this because it's so hard to pick. And again, as I was saying a little bit earlier, having to revisit this album and really take some time and sit with it, I went back and forth. If you had asked me last year or two years ago, my favorite was always Too High. 
hearing that a lot on the radio because it was covered by New York Voices. And so um, I heard it both ways. I heard, I heard it, I heard Stevie's, you know, original, and then I heard it really jazzy, sort of Manhattan transfery because of the New York Voices. She's a girl of the past. I guess that I got to her at last. Did you hear the news about the girl today? She passed away. Listening to it now, my standout track is Golden Lady, mm. uh, and it, it's also responsible for my favorite moment because it is just, it takes me to a place sonically and emotionally. I, if I feel like I keep rising with Stevie, and the way that the song fades out, and I think this starts about the 331, she spends the last minute and, and change of the song going from scale to scale to scale. I love Stevie's vocals on this. And it is now for me uh, my favorite song of the album. I, I, I play. I used to play Golden Lady all the time. Uh, when I was younger. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful record. Um, I like the combo of uh, High Ground and Jesus Children back to back. Mm. Um, there, you know, that's him going, you know, High Ground is is, a, is percolating. And um, again, you know, both of them are about spiritual uplift in a sense. High Ground is definitely about trying to find where you go, where, where am I going, what can I reach? Very inspirational. Jesus Children is a little more, you know, he's a little more cynical. He's he's definitely questioning, in his own way, some of the the commitment of people to their spiritual practice. Jesus Children is probably uh, my favorite because it's the one that probably was not the uh, it was not the hit record, but it was a, it's that kind of album track of thoughtfulness and and great musicianship and funkiness that that kind of makes the record work as an album. And Stevie has all those kind of tracks that aren't necessarily the hit records, but are just as musical and just as meaningful as any of the records that were on the radio. So, uh, Jesus Children of America. Nelson, not to put you on the spot, but we've been talking about some of our favorite moments on the album, and I'm wondering if, for, as someone who's probably listened to this LP, you know, more times than you can remember, are there any particular moments that really stand out that, even now to this day, still just get you amped or or just get give you that tingly feeling? Well, I think I think you don't don't worry about a thing. Well, he goes into the whole. I mean. The other thing to say about that album, you know, about I mentioned, you know, he had influenced by gospel and so, but also Latin music. I mean, he's working in New York in 1973 when salsa music is everywhere. It's popping out of every fucking window. It was a huge part of the, the sonic landscape of the city then. 
And so there's no way that someone is, is if he was going out to the clubs in New York, if he was driving on the street, he knew he heard salsa music. So I love that fact that that seems to me, that's something that definitely comes out of him being in New York. Uh, again, he's pulling all of these different threads, but they all sound like Stevie Wonder. They don't, they don't sound like a guy imitating someone else's music. And especially, and I don't know if this was the moment that you were talking about, but there is, and I forget where in the song structure it is. It's probably something like the third chorus, but it comes after, I think, the, the bridge part where he just launches into, you know, at, at almost full bellow, you know, don't you worry about it. I'm, I'm butchering it. I feel so bad I'm doing this. That's okay. That's the, all right. The, the exuberance at which he's singing this, because it's at a whole other volume level than the previous choruses, that is this, you know, Stevie, and we haven't even really talked much about the qualities of Stevie's voice, because as gifted as he was in all the other spheres, he just had an incredible voice. And I think it's that moment in the song where he just really lets loose that to this day, I still just get chills listening to it. can do almost anything with his voice sometimes playfully sometimes with great compassion with all great uh, emotion i think that's the uh, the secret part people tend to think of stevie you know little stevie wonder had that high-pitched voice but as he going around marvin and going around all those well can you imagine being on a road with you're on a road as a kid with Dinah ross with levi stubbs of the four tops and some other soul singers in that time he seemed to have been a, a real vacuum of not just musical riffs, but also vocal techniques. I, 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 there's certain singers, I remember Nusa Vandross used to talk about, there was chest singing and head singing. Um, and there were two different techniques he employed, depending on the song, uh, that created different sounds and emotion within his vocals. And Stevie is one of those people who, sometimes he's singing right from his 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 uh his chest and sometimes he's singing from his head and they are different sounds and they are different ways of approaching i think that that is one of the underappreciated aspects because the re someone who writes ballads as well as he does has to be really student of vo of singing because the ballad is about it's about interpretation uh it's a i mean all the all the old musicians i used to interview always used to said that you know anybody can make could play fast but can you play slow or sing slow with with passion, and Stevie manages to do both. And again, he's what is he? He's a little Stevie Wonder's. He's twenty something. I guess the way to the, one way to put this for people who are younger is Frank Sinatra covered his songs, Barbara Streisand covered his songs. So he was a pop songwriter. His ballads were was sung by everybody who thought they were who sang pop music. Uh, so it, it wasn't simply that he was the guy who wrote great and had made great sounds. He wrote songs that great interpretive singers wanted to sing. All is fair in love Love's a crazy game Two people vow to stay Nelson, I'm wondering, hard is it would be to imagine someone who's never heard Stevie Wonder before, but if you were to run into such an alien and you had to <laughs> try to introduce them 
to Stevie through this album and specifically through one song off of this album, which song would you choose as being that distillation of what it is to be or what it is to listen to Stevie Wonder? I think I would go with Don't You Worry About a Thing. It's fun. And it's a record that'll make you want to listen to more. I don't want to depress them with Living for the City off the top. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, or, or maybe even, you know, higher ground. I think you'd bring them in before you before you drag them through the mud. You got to give them a little sunshine. <laughs> Teachers, keep on teaching. Preachers, keep on preaching. If you could describe this album in three words, what would they be? Diverse. Uh, emotional cinematic. Mm, I love that. Well, for our listeners who might want to listen to something after this LP, we have some recommendations for you. And uh, I'll start off and would suggest that, again, audience members who really liked our discussion and specifically who have sat, who sat down to check out Intervisions, after this, move on to another album from 1973, and that would be Curtis Mayfield's Back to the World. Uh, another album by an undeniable soul genius that tackles all manners of social issues. And not to be too self-serving, but after you listen to that album, Go back and check out our Heat Rocks episode with Lyrics Born talking about that specific Curtis Mayfield LP. We got to stop. Morgan, how about you? I'd ask you to go forward to 2003 and an artist that I love named Donnie, and he had an album called The Colored Section. He released it independently in 2002, and then Motown picked it up in 2003. Heavy on the political commentary, definitely about black life and issues, and uh, I think the track to listen to off that one uh, would be the, t- the title track or a track called Heaven Sent. His voice has really been compared a lot to Stevie Wonder's and, of course, Donny Hathaway's. But it brings up a lot of sensibilities and the feeling um, and the sound of inner visions uh, that I think you recognize. On a wave of love, I'm high, so high, riding with the name And Nelson, what would you recommend that audience members check out next after this album? Well, I mean, there's a Howl Melvin and the Blue Oaks album called To Be True that came out around the same time as this, maybe a little bit later. And uh, it's early, it's before, it's before Teddy Pendergrass is even, you know, he's not a solo artist yet, and yet he dominates the record. Uh, there's also a beautiful uh, young singer who never really made a solo album named Sharon Page, who sang a bunch of duets with uh, Howard Melvin and Blue Notes, who's, who's featured on a couple of tracks there. Soon. 
Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Nelson George. Nelson, what are you working on right now? Well, I, I got to put a little commercial in. Mm-hmm. I have a, a book out called the Nelson George Mixtape. It's a collection of my writings from 1977 to 1993. Uh, you can really get it through Pacific Books, which is an independent publisher here in Brooklyn, New York. If you go on their website, uh, Pacific Books, they're also on Instagram, PacificPacific.pub. Uh, and, you know, it's got Marvin, Marvin Gaye interview. I, actually, a couple of Marvin Gaye interviews. I did a Bob Marley interview, um, Whitney Houston, uh, Early Prince, and actually one of the only interviews um, times that Grandmaster Flash, Bambada, and Herc ever sat down together, which I did for the Source magazine back in, like, the early 90s. So uh, it's, a, it's a thing I wanted to do. So it kind of celebrate. I put it out a couple of years ago to celebrate the fact that I'd been writing about music for about forty years, and I wanted to, you know. So it's so it's like a it's a it's a very it's even got rejection slips in it. Yeah, I was going to say I I had a chance to take a look at it, and I think one of the first things you open with is a rejection slip. It might have been from Bob Criscow with the Village Voice. So because <laughs> I, I mean that the process is not about. It was a journey. You know, the book is kind of a, a document of the process, and, and it's not always about winning. <laughs> you lose sometimes too. No doubt. And where can people find you online? Three fifteen Nelson George on IG, and the Nelson George on Facebook. There's a there's a couple of Nelson Georges, but uh, I'm the guy uh, who has I'm the better looking one. And then there's uh, there's one on Twitter as well, Nelson George, me. Just wanted to acknowledge real quick that between the time that we taped this interview with Nelson and when this episode airs, uh, Nelson George actually lost his father uh, at the age, I believe it was 88, to COVID. And so we send out our condolences to Nelson and his family for that loss. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family, taping every week live, normally, in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, but we are all sheltering and taping at home right now. We would like to thank our five-star iTunes reviewers, the most recent one being Sven Surge, who describes us as a wonderful show. They uh, Sven loves the format of inviting another well-versed person to talk about a favorite album. And certainly, I could not agree more with Sven on this. If you, dear audience member, have not had a chance to uh, leave us a review yet, please do consider it. It doesn't take very much time, and it is a big way that new people can find their way to our show. One last thing. Here's a teaser for next week's episode, which is part three of our comfort music series. And this time, Morgan and I selected our starting five from your selections that you shared with us on the Heat Rocks Facebook group. So we're very much looking forward to talking about your picks. What I've always loved about Erica Badu's music is its honesty, its reflectiveness, and its vulnerability. And there's poetry to it, whether she's talking about falling in love, whether she's talking about falling out of love, as is the case on Green Eyes for Mama's Gun, or whether she's just navigating the sometimes sticky, icky processing uh, that we do in the aftermath 
of After the Love is Gone, shout out to Earth, Wind, and Fire, this sort of vulnerability and this open view into her life and into her loves is also present on this album, which is one of the reasons I like this album so much. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.